0: Though well, in spoken or written languages, there's always some way to signal emphasis when you're communicating, whether that's altering the form or repeating words and phrases or there's a number of different ways in which you can accent or signal that something important, something full of urgency is about to be said. I think there's a very common example which is familiar to us all. And for instance, in spoken English, you can accent uh, the urgency of something by the example taken from the movie theater situation where somebody walks in and yells, FIRE! Because everybody knows right away that that's an urgent command to respond. It's signaling or emphasizes the importance of something because it's not a normal way of communicating in a quiet Movie theater. You can also do this in writing. There are a number of different ways. It's a little bit more tricky. But you can front words at the beginning of sentences or phrases. You can use bad grammar intentionally. Or you can alter the form. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul does here. In written discourse, signaling that something urgent is about to be communicated, he alters or swerves from a normal way of communicating with churches in written form when he says, right after the greeting, he goes from grace and peace to you, to I am astonished. And then... For four subsequent verses, you have the repetition of the apostles' theme. And you can tell that he is full of urgency and pastoral concern and brokenness over the church because in every verse of our text this morning, verses 6 through 9, he emphasizes the fact that they are being given over to a distorted, false, Cheap gospel. In every verse you see this concern. I'm astonished that you are deserting and turning to a different gospel. In verse 7 he says not that there is a different one. But there are some who are distorting the gospel. Verse 8, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary, then we have preached, let him be accursed. In verse 9, the repetition again of the emphatic declaration of judgment and anathema, he says, as we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach, let him be anathema, let him be accursed, let him be devoted to destruction. And so you see here by this emphasis, the Apostle Paul is signaling to us that something of great weight and significance is going on here in the Galatian church and in their belief system that they need to immediately address And so this morning we've entitled our message, Astonishing Apostasy. Because that's exactly what's happened here. There is an astonishing instance of apostasy here among the Galatian churches. Let's see how he describes it. You see it beginning in verse 6. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting. The first aspect of the apostasy is their desertion. It means to change your mind, to turn. It's used in the ancient literature to refer to a disciple changing a philosophical school and no longer being a disciple or a follower or a student of one particular well-renowned philosopher or teacher to change to another. And when people did that, they called him a deserter or a turncoat. It was also used to refer to people in the military who went AWOL from military duty. So the first thing that he says to these Galatians to signal the pastoral concern and urgency of the situation is he says, you're deserting. And then he says, so quickly. It's not just that they're deserting, but it's the rapid pace now. You have to take a moment to put yourself in the context here of this desertion, but the Apostle Paul has probably gone through this region, as we mentioned before, the southern tier of the Mesopotamian region, right next to the the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, And we said that the Apostle went through there in his first missionary journey. It's described in Acts 13 and 14, probably somewhere A.D. 47 and 48. And he's just left now, and it's in between... uh, The end of that first missionary journey and the Jerusalem Council in AD 49. I'm just kind of throwing out some dates there, not to bog you down with unnecessary minutia. But the point of it is that the Apostle has only been departed from this congregation at the most six months. And, and here the apostle says, I've barely even left the door. I've barely even uh, worn out my welcome among you. And I find out that you are so quickly deserting. And of course, it's the work of false teachers. You see that uh, now in verse 6 as well, or even into 7. Not that there is another, but there are some who want to trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now I want to go back over some ground that we went over a couple weeks back and expand upon it a little bit more because if you don't understand the audience and if you don't understand the false teachers and the root and cause of this heresy it's very difficult to get a handle on what the whole point of the letter to the Galatians is and why the apostle Paul is so worked up and why we have this precious letter in the Bible to begin with but if you turn over for instance with me to chapter 2 Uh, verse 11, you get a little snapshot of how this uh, chain of events has taken place. The Apostle says in verse 11, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. You see, verse 11, Paul places himself back in Antioch, which the Word of God says is where the Apostle Paul was at the end of his first missionary journey. He went back to his sending church, his mother church. And Acts uh, 14 says at the end there that... uh, Paul had spent no short amount of time with the church there. But apparently, as he's arriving back in Antioch, at the end of his first missionary journey, you see that he says Cephas was already there, that is Peter. And and while Peter was there, he was enjoying the fellowship of the churches. He was uh, treating and regarding the Galatian Gentiles, and rather the Antiochian Gentile, uh, former pagans, as uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord. It says he was eating with them. No doubt that's a reference to holding communion with them but he was also not requiring that they followed a Jewish kosher diet and a whole number of other things from the law and and he was receiving them well and it says but when certain men from James and that's a signal to James in Jerusalem who was really sort of the head elder or pastor in the church of Jerusalem it says when certain men from James came down uh, he receded from the Gentiles and the former Galatian pagan uh, brethren and required that they now follow a kosher diet, and and all of the external trappings of Judaism, or he wouldn't consider them as full and complete brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you turn over to Acts 15, you get a a broader development of this, but you see Paul gives a little bit of it there in Acts, but if you turn over uh, to Acts 15... You see a more full accounting of it. We went over this just in brief last time, but I think it's very important for us uh, to be clear about how all this came to pass in Galatia. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And then it says in verse 2, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. I'll just show you one of the thing here that's important. I scan down to verse five. It says. Uh, after they delivered um, this concern, this disputation to the Council of Jerusalem uh, for a decision that says, but some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So now you're beginning to see a more full picture emerge of who uh, these Uh, dissenters and these false teachers are. They're probably of the Pharisaical party from Jerusalem, yet they have been converted to Christianity. But they just cannot let the trappings of of Judaism and the Mosaic Covenant behind. They haven't understand the newness, the radical newness and the graciousness of the new covenant. And so here they are insisting that these Gentiles uh, believe and embrace all of the tenets of Judaism and the Mosaic Law, or they would just not be considered in any way in full communion. But more than just full communion, I want you to notice uh, verse one again, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, I want you to notice there's something very important in this. It's not as if the false teachers were saying, unless you are circumcised and keep the law and believe in Jesus... We're not sure whether you saved. You're not going to have any assurance. Or it's questionable, or it's in doubt, or it might make it harder to get you saved. I want you to notice what's very important is they're saying that you cannot be saved. In fact, the way this is emerging in the original, it's almost the strongest, most emphatic way of saying, no way. That's what they're saying. There's no way you can be saved by believing in Christ alone. Now, I want you to notice how a false gospel comes into a church. The false gospel does not come into a church by people denying Jesus. Notice at no time do these Judaizers, do these Pharisees, do these false teachers enter into the churches and stand up on a podium and a platform and say, Christ just doesn't save. Now that is very important to grasp because false doctrines, false gospels, false teachers never come into the church denying Christ. But they do come in with a twist. You need Jesus and maybe something else. And that's exactly what they're doing here. And I I just pause to make a point of application here with this. And that is that we can't be too quick to judge a gospel a valid or a true gospel you you often hear people say oh well you know really they're preaching Jesus over there so it's okay yeah yeah they have some some strange additions maybe um they're adding this or that, but you know, at the end of the day, they preach Jesus, and remember what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians, he says, whether Christ is preached out of ulterior motives, or, or, or whatever it is, as long as Jesus is being preached, I rejoice, and they go to that verse, but I want you to notice what the Apostle Paul's criteria is, for preaching Jesus, it's not just preaching any Jesus, or a portion of Jesus, but you have to preach all of Jesus in the way that the Spirit revealed in the Word of God is the true Jesus and the true way of salvation, or it's not a Jesus and a preaching of the Gospel that can be rejoiced in. Because Paul does not just sit here idly and watch these false teachers proclaim a false gospel which is Jesus plus works and then say, oh, let's rejoice. Jesus is being proclaimed. No, what the Apostle Paul says is if anyone preaches anything other than the Christ I preach to you, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. So here these false teachers have come in and Paul says they're they're distorting this gospel. They're distorting it. Verse 7, back to Galatians chapter 1. By saying that it's Christ plus circumcision plus keeping the law or you can't be saved. And he says they've come in and They've worked uh, this discord and the confusion, he says in verse 7, by troubling. That's the last thing I want to note under this astonishing apostasy and how it all came to pass is because they troubled them. It means to shake or stir something with violent force or motion. You see, these false teachers just sort of came into the Galatian churches and they hit him so hard with this false gospel and this such an overwhelming, systematic, and no doubt even sort of a passionate and charismatic delivery. And the end result is at the end of the day, these poor Galatians, their heads are just swimming. They're confused. And they say to themselves if these people could be so religious and so Christian sounding, and so pious, and, and from Jerusalem even. And this Paul, boy, we don't know much about him. They said, maybe there's something to it. Maybe there's something to it. They came in distorting, and they came in troubling, and confusing, and Disrupting their mental thinking processes and taking their minds off of the substance of God's word and the truth which had been proclaimed and through flash and mirrors, and they took their minds off of Christ and the gospel. And about all this, the Apostle Paul says, "I'm astonished. I'm astonished at you Galatian. I'm amazed. You know, people of God, we ought to be amazed when people turn away from the true Gospel. We ought to be terribly alarmed and amazed because we ought to love God and His truth and His church and His people so much that it ought to break our hearts, that it ought to fill us with sorrow and mourning we, we ought to be full of wonder and amazement that somebody would, would take the gospel of Jesus Christ and reject it and set it aside in the place uh, it, it, of something that, that is a false gospel which is about Jesus plus what you do and, and your works and all of this and your, your salvation is contingent. It ought to be amazing to us and surprise us that people would turn from that. You know, we... We should be alarmed and we should go after people who in the name of Christ distort his gospel and twist his truth. I'm afraid today that we've lost that sense of alarm in our churches. I'm afraid that in a sense we've lost that because we're so concerned about external unity and and people loving each other, and I think that that's so important. And I know that there's been so much criticism and fighting and division and distinction among God's people and even true churches and even Reformed churches over, over sometimes the most petty and silly of doctrinal distinctive that we elevate to, to foundational fundamental principles and because of that the church of Jesus Christ is rent asunder and the world looks at the churches they say what's the matter with you people you you proclaim peace and, and unity and love and Jesus Christ and yet you guys can't even get along and stay on the same roof together we've been battered down by that you know there's a sense in which we ought to let people alone on some issues that are absolutely critical, essential, foundational issues. There's a sense in which we ought to be able, out of charity, to say, you know what, brother, we just see it differently. It's okay. It doesn't mean you're outside of the church. It doesn't mean you're not a brother or sister in the Lord. But when somebody comes along and changes the gospel, Paul says, there's the dividing line. When somebody says, no, it's not Christ alone. When somebody says, no, it's not faith alone. When somebody says, no, it's not grace alone. The Apostle Paul says, it's not one of those issues where we can stand around in a circle and sing kumbaya together and, and have warm fuzzy feelings and still say, yeah, they preach Jesus. He says, no, when that happens, we have to be alarmed. And we have to come after them with with all the strength and grace and power of the Holy Spirit through the Word and call them to repentance and warn them that following a false gospel puts them outside of the church of Jesus Christ and that it's serious. That they're deserters. Because for Paul, the gospel, the true gospel, is a foundational pillar and mark of the true church. I would admonish us this morning. To be full of holy alarm. To be full of holy alarm. Towards brothers and sisters. Who don't profess. A full or true or complete gospel. Or of churches. That add Jesus and works. And we ought to be full of alarm. Towards them and in love. But firmness with the apostle Paul. Say, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called. So Paul describes this apostasy in brief, and I want to give you five reasons for why it's so astonishing, though. Why is this so astonishing? First of all, because what they're turning to is no gospel. Paul says in verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And then notice how he follows that up now in verse 7. Not that there's a different one. He says, you're turning to a different one and, and they might breathe a sigh of relief and say, whew, there's at least four or five different ones and as long as I'm in the mix there, it's Okay. But he says, no, Paul says there's a categorical contrast. There's true gospel and everything else over here. And this true gospel is not five or six different shades of color or of gray or various levels of gray. He says it's black or it's white. It's true gospel or it's false gospel. And there's nothing in between. And he says, you have turned from true gospel, therefore you've turned to false one, which is really no gospel at all. He emphasizes this over and over and over again these verses. He says you're turning to something that's distorted. You're turning to something that's contrary. Verses 8 and 9. It's a no gospel gospel that they're turning to. The only thing I want to say in addition to that is that a false gospel does not have to be something, again, that denies Jesus entirely. A false gospel is any gospel which adds anything to what the Word of God says is the gospel. Or a false gospel is any gospel which purports to be a gospel which takes away anything that the Word of God says is the gospel. Now, when you begin to understand true or false gospel in terms of fidelity and complete submission to the gospel that is outlined and revealed in God's Word, you begin to realize there's a lot of false gospel out there today. There's an awful lot of false gospel out there today. It's not okay to be reductionistic when it comes to the gospel. Dwight Moody used to say that he could put his gospel on the backside of a dime. Great evangelist, great evangelist, used throughout the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, thousands and thousands and thousands flocked to hear the great Moody preach, And he says, I can reduce that gospel to the backside of a dime. And I said, why didn't Paul think of that? It took him 16 chapters to unfold the gospel to the Romans. It took the Holy Spirit 27 letters in the New Testament. And we can just reduce the gospel to the backside of a dog. We can just reduce the gospel to simple little slogans. Try Jesus. A false gospel does not have to be an egregious, horrible, devilish, demonic looking thing. Because Paul says there's only true gospel and false gospel. And false gospel is anything that takes away from what he So he says you're turning is an astonishing event because you're turning to a no gospel. Number two, it's astonishing because only the gospel that the Apostle Paul proclaimed provided justification. Now you know what justification is justification is God's legal declaration of righteousness with respect to the law. That's the definition. The word dikaiosune is used throughout the New Testament. And it's forensic. It's about a courtroom righteousness. It's about you standing before the bar of divine justice and God declares you righteous. And that justification has two parts. It has the imputation of Christ's righteousness to our account. All of the perfection and the obedience of Christ's obeying and keeping the law is stamped right to my account. And then it's the washing over of all of my sins through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it has one instrument, not two. Faith and faith alone. And that's the gospel that Paul preached. And he says to them, you cannot listen to a gospel that is contrary to the one I have preached. The one that he preached was justification by faith alone. At the end of his first sermon in the first Galatian church, he summarizes gospel as this. Acts 13, 38 and 39. By him, that is by Christ, everyone who believes is justified from all the things which you could not be justified justified by the law of Moses you see at the end of the day when the apostle Paul says I can summarize my gospel to you it's about justification by faith alone through Christ alone by grace alone you see what these Galatians are turning from They're turning from the perfection of Christ's obedience. They're turning away from the blood which is God's way of saying you are cursed eternally for all those sins. They're turning away from that blood which which is God's penalty which is poured out on Christ. And the astonishing thing is in turning from that they are turning back to the law which the Apostle Paul says could not justify you. Listen to what he says again, verse 39. By him, everyone who believes is justified from all the things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. You see, they're substituting a no-gospel gospel which provides no justification, no imputation, no forgiveness of sins for this gospel. Paul's astonished. I'm astonished that you are deserting him who called you and turning to a no gospel. The third reason why the Apostle Paul is astonished is because this gospel is void of the Holy Spirit. You can these things together to you. I'm just only going to mention this in passing, but in Galatians chapter 3, verse 2, after he's called them foolish Galatians, he's accusing them of being bewitched. He says, Christ has been proclaimed before you publicly. He says in verse 2, let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? You see, what Paul is implying by that is with the true gospel, the Holy Spirit comes. In a false gospel, Paul says, the Holy Spirit does not come. All you are left with is flesh. All you are left with is works. And he says unto them, didn't you receive the Holy Spirit? Didn't you see the miracles that I performed? Didn't you see the signs and wonders? He says, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Now you're now perfected by the flesh? You see what happens though when you you give up the true gospel? The Apostle Paul is saying you give up the Holy Spirit and all you have is flesh. Sadly, Paul talks about what the flesh leaves us in chapter 5. Chapter 5, he says, talking about this dichotomy or this Radical distinction between flesh and spirit says in verse 17 of chapter 5, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. See that? Flesh and spirit totally opposed to each other. And then he goes on to catalog, which is produced by the flesh. He says the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, origins, things like this. But then he goes on to say, here's what the Spirit provides. It's fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You see why it's so astonishing that the Galatians would turn from the Gospel? Because in turning from the Gospel, the Apostle Paul says, all that you are shut up to, all that you are left with, is your flesh. All that you are left with is a certain enslavement to all of the addictions, idolatries, and gross immoralities which are produced by the flesh. And you are trapped. When you turn from this gospel, the apostle Paul says, you will no longer have the fruit of the spirit. You will no longer have the love, the joy, the peace, the gentleness, the self-control. All of that is gone with a false gospel. Because only the true gospel is accompanied by the Holy Spirit. Paul says it's astonishing. It's absolutely astonishing that someone would prefer the power and the works of the flesh over the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Fourthly, the Apostle Paul says it's astonishing because who it turns us away from. Look at your text again in verse 6. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting Him who called you. There's two things that really are striking features here in this short little clause. The two things being Him who called you and the second part of Him who calling you, he says it's in grace. See, Paul is inundating them with the consequences and the implications. He's unraveling it for them and showing you have these categorical contrasts. You have the Father calling you and it's in grace so you have the false teachers and the false doctrine and the false gospel who are promising you works and flesh and nothing else, no grace. He says it's astonishing that you would turn from Him. And the first thing that the Apostle Paul says, he doesn't, he doesn't even indicate that it's the Gospel. He says the first thing he says that he's astonished about is that they are deserting Him. They're deserting God, he says. He underscores the aggravation of all of that by the description. The One who called you. It's so astonishing... The Apostle Paul says that you would go to a false gospel and follow false teachers because you're deserting him who called you. You see what the Apostle Paul is saying? You you didn't come into the church. You didn't leave your, your pagan, Gentile, selfish, idolatrous Lust-filled lives because you decided one day when you woke up, man, I'm just going to pull things together for myself today. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm really going to follow through on my New Year's resolutions and I'm going to be a whole new me now. Let's go find God. Let's go find God and He'll fix this. No, what the Apostle Paul says is here you are, steeped in all of your sins, all of your idolatries, all of your enslavement, to all of your fleshly lusts and sinful works, and God comes calling. You see, you didn't look for him, the Apostle Paul says. He looked for you. He called you. And the Scriptures want to underscore the sovereignness, the unassistedness of you being a Christian. It talks about God calling. It's not that God's out there saying, "You who." It's that the Father, with all of the authority that He has, being almighty and eternal God, sends His Spirit into your heart and drags you into His kingdom with all of His force. He calls. It's not just a general declaration and all those who were willing and ready and listening came to Him. No, as the Father with all of His might and all of His power and all of His saving grace comes as the Apostle Paul has described God's work among the Galatians as God opening a door. He says He called And if God called you to salvation, then that ought to teach us that we don't come to God on our terms, but we come on His. If God is the one who is calling, if God is the one who is coming after us with all of His eternal power to save, You don't get the privilege or the right to dictate to Him how you will come to Him. You come as He says. You see, that's the audacity. That's the arrogance. That's what's so astonishing about this apostasy is that it's the almighty, sovereign, omnipotent, eternal, gracious and loving, electing, predestinating God saves you. And you have the nerve to now dictate to him that his message is inadequate. Christ alone is inadequate. We need Jesus plus circumcision plus obedience. Paul says that's astonishing. You don't have the right. The pot does not have Power over the potter it's him who called there's one other thing here that I want you to take note of too it's astonishing that they would turn from God but I want you to notice that when you turn from the truth when you turn from the gospel you're not just turning from ideas or concepts or creeds or confessions or fellowship with other brothers and sisters, or churches, or denominations. You turn from God. He says, you've turned from Him. You haven't just turned from abstractions and, and just words and ideas out there and, and we can just shuffle those around and, and go to whichever one we prefer and then we don't like this one anymore. We can trade it in for a new idea. See, people, all, all kinds of people out there are just idea tasters. They're philosophy tasters. They're pragmatic at the end of the day. Whatever works is good. And so if this name brand doesn't work anymore, I'll switch to this name brand. If I don't like that car, I'll trade it in for that car. See, it's just abstractions. It's, it's just these entities out there that are non-personal. They just don't matter. see And our whole world looks at even religion now. We all try Jesus if that works, but if that doesn't, I'll set him aside. I'll, I'll go to Buddha or Muhammad or, or whatever. See, it's just abstractions out there, impersonal entities, so it's so easy to come and go and trade allegiances. But the Apostle Paul cuts through that, through all the deception of that way of looking at reality. And he says it's not like that. It's not that you're trading clubs or ideas or, or, or anything. Obst- you're, 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 you're turning from God. When you give up the truth... You don't give up ideas. You give up a relationship with an eternal being. Paul says, I'm astonished. Fifthly, and finally, the Apostle Paul is astonished because of the outcome or the consequence of false teaching. Verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. It's astonishing, the Apostle Paul says, that you Galatians would be turning to false teachers when God has devoted them to destruction. You see, that's what the word means when it says, that let him be accursed. It's let him be turned over to and devoted to divine destruction. They're being turned over and devoted to nothing but eternal wrath and condemnation. And the Apostle Paul says, You're listening to people whom God has has put His stamp on, devoted to destruction. You see the kind of standards God holds His ministers to? God holds His standards, His his mouthpieces, His representatives to absolutely the highest, most impeccable doctrinal standards. And that ought to be absolutely terrifying to anybody who ever takes the office of minister or teacher. James says in chapter 3, Don't be many masters, for we will receive the greater condemnation. If false teachers and, if teachers and ministers in general and acad- academians and professors and people who've been charged with being the guardians of the deposit of God's Word would just listen and take this so much more seriously than they do. I wonder how much of all the silliness that comes out of our seminaries and churches and pulpits and Christian magazines in the name of Christ and the church would just be set aside. So everybody wants to come up with something new. They, they want their own new angle. They, they want their own idea and their name down next to it. So generation after generation, oh, well, that's the so-and-so idea. Well, that's the so-and-so doctrine or practice. Isn't that great? Everybody's looking to be unique and, and have something fresh and new to make a name. And, and, and Paul says, don't listen to people who get consumed with themselves because they're devoted, he says to divine wrath. God holds his teachers to the highest, most impeccable standards that we may never deviate from them or we fall into this terrible, terrible judgment and curse. That's sobering to a minister. If we misrepresent what God says in his word, it's not just that we were wrong. You know what, if God holds his ministers to such a high and impeccable standard, then people of God, you must hold his ministers and those who profess to be teachers to the same high and impeccable standards. You have no right to subject yourself to a minister of the word, a ministry of the word, a teaching of the word that comes from somebody who could be designated devoted to destruction. John's second letter, he says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. I warn you, you have no right to listen to any minister or any teacher, whether that's on the radio or in print or just casually go listening somewhere in churches. You have no right to subject yourself or submit to the ministry of somebody who you know preaches a false gospel who preaches any other gospel than justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, it doesn't matter how godly they may appear to be, how pious they may look, how holy they may sound, how many great insights supposedly give for Christian living, if they don't preach a true gospel, you must not listen. Because Paul says, they are devoted to destruction. If we use that criteria for evaluating what we heard on most of what's on Christian radio today, I am sad to say that there would be almost no one left to listen to. And that's even Protestants, because they did not proclaim the gospel which the Apostle Paul preached, and which Paul said, if they deviate from that, even a hair's breadth, let them be accursed. So Paul's astonished. What can we learn from that? Well, I think quickly we can learn three things. To guard your heart, you have to guard your mind. To guard your heart, you have to guard your mind. Remember they came in, the Apostle Paul says, troubling. Their tactic was intellectual confusion to get them so stirred up mentally and psychologically that they just went along. They wanted the noise to be quiet in their heads. They wanted all the questions and the doubts that that these false teachers were bringing to their mind. They wanted all those things suppressed and just swept out of the way. And the easiest way to do that was to just say, Okay, whatever you say. But Paul says when you do that, when you don't guard your mind, you leave your heart exposed to error and to a false gospel. So number one, guard your heart by guarding your mind if it's not clear, if it's not understandable, if it's not evidently rooted and grounded in Scripture, whether you can answer it, whether you can refute the objections, or whatever else, if it sounds convincing or persuading, or even delivered with great charisma and personality, you just say no. Guard your heart by guarding your mind. Number two, Think through the consequences of the doctrine. Think through the consequences of the doctrine. Boil it down to its most rudimentary, basic principles and see what kind of implications or consequences does it bring. (laughs) If these Galatians had ever really boiled down this false gospel to its rudiments, they would have understood this. Jesus plus works equals condemnation. Because they should have known that the Word of God teaches that everyone who does not continue in all the things written in the book of the law to do them is accursed. And they should have known, they should have heard, you have to do something, and immediately they would have thought to themselves, there's no way I can, because I can't keep all of the things in the law. And if I can't keep all the things in the law, Jesus can't even save me from my sin." if that's the basis of my justification. Think through the consequences. And then third and finally, don't set aside old beliefs or add new ones hastily. Don't set aside old beliefs or add new ones hastily. There's always the attraction of something new. There's always the the. Oh, it sounds so insightful. It sounds like a sharp, new, fresh way of putting it. And and so you find Christians very often who get tired of the same old basic rudimentary catechetical truths and they say, I want something new. The people of God, you don't grow into spiritual maturity by chasing after every new wind of doctrine. You grow into spiritual maturity by mastering the basic, rudimentary, foundational, fundamental principles of the faith. And you learn them, and you master them, and you meditate on them, and you take them into your heart, and your soul, and your mind, and you live by them. And doing that day by day, week by week, year by year, God in His grace adds spiritual maturity and depth to your faith. Because He wants you to not be taken captive by every new wind of doctrine or innovation. But He wants you trained on the simplicity and the clarity of the truth of His Word. Ah, These Galatians and their desertion give us a great warning this morning. They show us how prone we are to stray and to wander after frivolous and light doctrines. They show us how prone we are to deception. they teach us also the value and the absolute significance and importance and how essential it is that if we would be devoted to God, we absolutely must be devoted to his gospel. May God help us this morning not to desert the God who calls, but to lay hold of him by faith through Christ. Amen.